0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. On April 21st, the UTSA Neurosciences Institute hosted an all-star panel of physiologists for a symposium on ion channels and firing patterns of dopamine neurons. On the panel were Bruce Bean of Harvard Medical School, Jochen Roper of Goethe University, Frankfurt, Jim Surmeyer of Northwestern, John Williams from the Volum Institute in Oregon, and our own Carlos Palladini. This discussion, recorded after the day's talks, has Charles Wilson leading the group in a broad discussion on dopamine neurons, from their intrinsic pacemaker properties to ionic mechanisms of tonic and phasic firing, to how activity patterns can influence toxicity. Thanks for listening.
1: Okay, joining us today for our discussion of dopamine cell firing patterns and related things are Jim Sturmeyer from Northwestern University. Hi, I'm Jim Sturmeyer. Jochen Roker from Frankfurt.
2: Hello, I'm Jochen.
1: And Bruce Bean, Harvard.
2: I am Bruce, hello Charlie.
1: Howdy, Carlos Paladini. Hi Charlie, this is Carlos. And uh, John, John Williams, Williams from Portland, Rome. Oregon. <laughs> Hi Charlie. Hi, my is Charlie. And, uh, uh, today we're talking about the firing patterns of dopamine cells, and there's been a long history of study in these things. And without a complete resolution of all the questions, although there's been a lot of progress, but I would kind of summarize what I think of as the questions that have been around for a long time. And the first one is, what is the ionic cellular mechanism of pacemaking, the background firing of the dopamine cells? And uh, many of you have worked on that, and there's been a lot of progress on that, although maybe not a total resolution of every question that one would answer. Another one is, uh, what is the ionic mechanism of bursting? And... Uh, a third is what are the relative roles of these two things? <coughs> why does the cell have a pacemaking firing pattern and why does it have a bursting firing pattern? And there's also pauses, bursts almost implied pauses, but the pauses are sometimes thought to mean something in, in, uh, by themselves. And then uh, another old question is uh, how is dopamine released from dendrites and what in the world is dendritic release of dopamine for? And then a slightly newer question is, how might the cell death of dopamine neurons in Parkinson's disease be related to their firing patterns, and is there a firing pattern that's more dangerous to the, to the dopamine cell than others? Uh, and those are topics that I know all of you are interested in. So I, I thought I would um, start by asking a maybe the hardest question, which is, why does the cell have a... A, rest, a resting pacemaker. Why does it sell a pacemaker to begin with? Why doesn't it just fire when it's told to fire by its inputs? And uh, what in the world could that pacemaker mechanism be for in the target structures? You can volunteer to answer <laughs> this question. Well, well it, it seems to me
3: that the, the obvious goal of pacemaking is to maintain some basal level of dopamine in target structures like the striatum now, we know from work in Parkinson's disease patients that some basal level of D2 receptor tone, in particular is important for normal movement control. So it would seem as though the pacemaker is a, is a good mechanism for achieving that end. I mean, I think that's the, the sort of obvious explanation for the pacemaking mode. It also provides a background against which inhibition can be seen, so it provides a means by which both increases and decreases in, in dopamine signaling can be
1: observed. Well, it's sometimes said that when like more dopamine might affect mood or motivation or something like that, I guess the background activity is what's being spoken of at that time, or is it?
4: Well, you that's think- the, uh, you know the Tony Grace assumption is that it, this background firing affects tonic levels of dopamine, or else phasic effects are more related to a reward prediction, and general motivation is this tonic background firing.
1: So that means it's not just whether my dopamine cells are firing, it means it matters how much, and I might modify how much they fire, and it might change something about me in the background firing. I mean, I'm not saying that I would actually modify my dopamine cells firing, but if I were to do that, wouldn't it affect something about me? My but it,
3: but isn't it the case that the pacemaking rate is is very uniform uh, across behavioral states? I mean, does it in fact vary that much?
4: Yeah. And so the, the, this is not my argument. So I guess I'm, I'm taking up Tony Grace's persona. Um, his claim is that there that it's not so much the the pacemaker firing rate that changes, but the number of cells that are active increases or decreases. Yeah. So he does this. Um, I guess that it records the number of cells, active dopamine cells, they encounter when as they're lowering a pipette in vivo. And under different situations, they um, say they can increase the number of cells, although the general firing rate of the population of cells doesn't increase. See, I
3: don't understand it at all. Every healthy cell I encounter yeah. is pacemid. Yeah. Right? So how, where do the cells come from okay, without some sort of active Inhibition. These are in slices that you're talking about. Because yeah, if you yeah, look in, in vivo, slices. you
1: see a pretty broad range of firing rates from cells that are not firing or that are firing too slowly to detect to cells that are firing 10 hertz or something like that in vivo. Is that, am yeah. I representing the range? Yes, that's
5: right. I, I think another point is uh, you have to look at the target area. Mm. I mean, there are behavioral dopamine signals where, think of stress, think of working memory prefrontal cortex, where the dopamine level is raised for many minutes when there is mental effort, um, you know, to to, to, to be had for a certain task. Um, And we don't know, but here simply raising the pacemaker, for instance, for mesocortical cells for a couple of minutes, would be a sufficient signal for all that we know to increase our working memory capacity in the prefrontal cortex. So clearly by the, the famous reward prediction paradigm, we have a narrowed vision of what dopamine signaling could do. So I think there's a place for increasing and changing pacemaker rhythms in certain target areas of the brain, which might be even the dominant way of dopamine signaling.
1: So there could be two different dopamine s- signals. We just don't know necess- everything about what they w- would be. But I guess uh, by our reluctance to commit ourselves to what the background activity really stands for, uh, that means that we'd be anxious to commit ourselves on what the burst, the
4: meaning of the burst is. But so the, the, the Jim also alluded to that it, maybe the background doesn't really do anything except allow us to um, identify pauses. Which, when you when you talk about reward prediction error, it is just as important as the burst. Um, without pauses, and if you only have bursts, reward prediction error doesn't work so well. Yeah, but basal dopaminergic tone in the striatum is absolutely
3: essential for normal movement. You yeah, get okay. resurfing and true. deplete the system of dopamine, animals stop moving.
6: But I, wonder if, I wonder if pacemaking activity is important at all in this basal tone in the striatum. Perhaps it's nicotinic tone on terminals in the striatum that actually keeps dopamine release going, and it's quite independent of what goes on in the cell-body region. And it's only bursts that activate that release more dopamine. I'm okay with that. Yeah.
5: I think there's an old study that showed that the effect of L-DOPA is dependent on the dopamine release in the, the local dopamine release in the nigra, the BTA, um, by affecting D1 receptors, presynaptic D1 receptors. So maybe the local tone, um, as you said, is disconnected, partially at least, from the axonal release, but the local tone that retic is actually functionally relevant for the very same reasons Jim just mentioned, namely to keep the ability to move whenever you want. But this doesn't fit with the idea that
3: that D2 receptor agonists in particular are effective in Parkinson's disease patients, because all that's going to do, according to John's mechanism, is to hyperpolarize uh, uh, dopaminergic neurons, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. a systemic administration of a D2 agonist should hyperpolarize. diminish tonic activity, um, and and um, so if if in fact that's critical, local, then that should not be a motor activator. That should be a motor suppressor, but in fact it's a motor activator for Parkinson's disease these patients. So this is why the idea that tonic D2 receptor tonum and striatum was
6: critical to basal
3: motor activity is, is a but But...
6: The but D2, D2 agonist that you apply is, is not just activating D2 receptors on dopamine cells. It's also activating D2 receptors in the striatum, Right, which is why I think the
3: tonic release of dopamine in the striatum is important. Now, whether that's due to pacemaking activity right. or uh, colonic nicotinic receptor tone in the striatum, is another issue. Right? So what do nicotinic receptor antagonists do to motor behavior? Can you get them? into the striding, to see what it does to motor behavior? I think we're going to have to ask
6: John Danny that question. <laughs> I don't know it.
1: Unfortunately, John is not here. So one of the targets of, uh, of dopamine is the dopamine neurons themselves. So it's ironic that you said that maybe the background firing doesn't do anything at all because you're the person who shows that dopamine released by dopaminergic neurons has effects on other dopamine neurons and that that probably is happening during the
6: background firing as well. Yeah, but we've been able to evoke dopamine release by a a monster stimulation, uh, electrical stimulation that probably recruits many dopamine cells to release dopamine. And maybe we don't see uh, release from the tonic activation because everything's asynchronous. But certainly what we do is synchronize everybody to go off with the stimulation that we give.
3: But do the effects of cocaine that you observed argue that, there, as you pointed out earlier, that that argues that there's tonic dopamine release
6: that may be related to single spikes the yep. and the pacemaking activity. I think that's one of the experiments that we can that we should do now to mm-hmm. determine how sensitive the release of dopamine, that the tonic release of dopamine, is to uh, sodium
1: channels. One old question about the release of dopamine from dendrites has to do with its duration of action. It could only be answered by knowing the duration of action. And that is, can the release of uh, dopamine caused by single action potentials couple dopamine cells to other dopamine cells and to synchronize them or to anti-synchronize them to alter their phase relationships? For that to work, the duration of dopamine's action has to be shorter than the inter-spike intervals of dopamine cells. uh, otherwise, the dopamine just accumulates, becomes basically a DC effect on the dopamine cell. So, so do we know the answer to that? Could dopamine be synchronizing or phase-locking dopamine cells to each other or not?
6: Not, not. It doesn't synchronize them when you look at, at, at the tonic activity. Um, if Mike Beckstead did, did this experiment where he stimulated and you see the pause, and after that time, that activity would be synchronized for a period. Uh, of course, he's only recording from one cell, but time after time, you would get spikes at exactly the right time. Uh, and, and if you did the, the correlation, you'd get these beautiful peaks. But eventually they fall apart again, after tens of seconds, probably. So I think you can synchronize the activity, but, but you do that experimentally. Um, I don't, you know, perhaps with a bit of cocaine, you could synchronize activity. We, we haven't actually seen that, but it may it may happen. Just by increasing the sensitivity of the cells to dopamine by having more dopamine around for a bit longer.
1: So you think it's not a, a matter of time course. The time course is okay. It is a matter of the strength of the connection between dopamine.
6: Yeah, I think it's weak, it's weak to begin with.
1: So if the dopamine cells are all out of phase with each other and dopamine released from dendrites acts by volume conduction, even then, if the, if the dopamine's action is brief, it just all gets averaged together anyway.
6: That, so that's right. But if, if there is volume transmission and if there is some tonic level of dopamine, then a D2 receptor antagonist should, should cause an increase in activity. And, and it doesn't, at least in the slice preparation, it surely does
1: in vivo. Uh-huh. That seems like a key experiment to me. Yeah. So I, I know that uh, it's because this group doesn't want to commit itself on uh, experimental questions in which you do not collect your own data, uh, that you didn't want to talk too much about some of those questions. So I'll get to something that is more directly associated with your work, and that is the ionic mechanism of pacemaking. So we thought we knew what the ionic mechanism of pacemaking was and that we were just working out the details over the last few years, and then uh, Jim shows us an ionic mechanism. It's, it's not that the one we thought was there isn't there, but there's another one comes out of sort of out of nowhere and seems to coexist with it, and they seem to be uh, able to act independently. So Jim, would you uh, sort of briefly say what this is about and uh, and give us your Ideas
3: about. All right. so the, the, the classical model of pacemaking control is that it, it depends upon uh, an oscillation that is triggered by calcium entry through L-type calcium channels, which depolarizes the cell's membrane, leads to a buildup and in intracellular calcium activation of a calcium-activated potassium conductance, which then hyperpolarizes the membrane, leads to closure of the calcium channels there's a slow dissipation of the calcium concentration inside the cell, which then uh, leads to closure of the potassium channels, and then slow depolarization, which then leads to reopening of the calcium channels. So this, there's this uh, calcium-dependent uh, oscillation. So, obviously, we, we've been very interested in pursuing that because of the potential linkage to metabolic stress and Parkinson's disease. So... Um, it just, in our hands, it turns out that um, the way in which those experiments have been done and the, and the basis upon which that model was, was built was a, a particular um, experimental trajectory. So people uh, would block sodium spikes and see slow oscillatory potentials, which were dependent upon calcium channels, which had a frequency that was very similar to the natural pacemaking spiking of the cell. So it was natural to, to, to infer that that slow oscillatory potential, which depended upon L-type calcium channels, was actually driving the spiking and pay- that, that, that people saw with extracellular recording in sharp electrodes. So it just turns out that um, we think that you can block that slow oscillatory potential by antagonizing L-type calcium channels without stopping the pacemaker, so if you do that first if you block the L-type calcium channels first the sodium spikes continue as if there were two oscillators with very similar natural frequencies the calcium oscillator that everyone has sort of focused on for the last 15 years and a sodium ACN leak based oscillator which which generates the spikes so so um, we think that there are basically two oscillators that are coupled um, uh, by the compact electrotonic structure of the dopaminergic neurons that work in parallel. They work in concert with one another, and you can disrupt one or the other one and still see an oscillation. Right? So um, I think the key thing for us is that the The calcium oscillation can be eliminated without stopping the pacemaking, for whatever reason the the pacemaking uh, serves in the brain as a whole, which means that um, therapeutics, which target calcium channels, which might diminish calcium entry and uh, diminish uh, uh, stress of those cells, ought to come with little or no uh, loss of function. Uh, The trouble with it is, is we don't really understand if that's true, what the principal function of the calcium oscillation in the dendrites is. Perhaps it's burst firing, as Carlos showed. Perhaps it has to do with synaptic plasticity. Um, I think it's an important thing for us to try and answer what the, the, the other roles of the calcium oscillation in the dendrites are. Is that, is that yeah, it's clear? Pretty common
1: to, yeah, it's pretty common to see what, while watching the dopamine cell fire, uh, a cycle in which it didn't fire an action potential, but did fire a slow oscillatory potential—is mm-hmm. that uh, match your right?
3: Experience? So the two oscillators are working together, and and I think maybe the the sodium uh, oscillator uh, it has a little bit higher natural frequency, so has a tendency to pull along the the calcium oscillator in the normal life of the cell. So. That, that means that if you miss a sodium spike, and for whatever reason, the cell doesn't have a sodium spike, that the calcium oscillator is coming along. It's not very far behind the sodium oscillator. So you'll see that oscillation in intracellular calcium just exactly the same way. Um, but it's uh, that, that calcium oscillation is not, so if you turn it around, it's clear that sodium spike is not necessary for the calcium oscillation. I don't think that calcium oscillation is necessary for the sodium spike, either. Uh, based, again, upon our, our imaging experiments where we monitor intracellular calcium and we can show that with low concentrations of dihydropyridines, you can eliminate that oscillation without changing significantly the frequency of the sodium spike. So,
1: Just to play devil's advocate, because these experiments, I mean, as you point out, that the trick is that we design an experiment a certain way, and it, in a way, it determines what we find out. So, right. the order in which we did those old experiments determined the outcome to some degree, and we and hid that truth from us. But the, it's also the case that if we, for example, if we poison calcium channels, mm-hmm. then we remove calcium dependent potassium currents. As a result, the cell becomes more sensitive to persistent sodium current and is more likely to be a reliable pacemaker by that mechanism um, so that instance where this cell misses a cycle basically stops and the cell starts to hit on every single cycle.
3: Right, so there's no question that the cell becomes more vulnerable to poisoning of other channels or, or, or failures of other conductances to do their job. So, I mean, in a, in a way, having the dual oscillators makes the cell extraordinarily robust. And so that pacemaking happens almost you know, without fail. And there are lots of examples of you know, how important, again, for whatever reason, that pacemaking is. Carlos, for example, was part of a, a study where uh, they, they eliminated dopamine release from dopamine cells and, and showed that, in spite of that fact, pacemaking rate right, and regular is perfectly normal in behaving animals. And even, you know, people have thought for a long time that dopamine was a very important negative feedback regulator. And I don't think his his, his uh, experiments argue against that. But what they do argue for is, it, is a lot of homeostatic pressure to keep that pacemaking going at a certain rate. And the cell is is designed extraordinarily well to to... To maintain that rate. And in our experiments, where we put on very high concentrations of dihydroperidine and, and artificially uh, perhaps stopped pacemaking, the cells came back still. It took hours for the cells to start spiking again, and it took alterations in gene expression, but the cells started pacemaking again, as if the cells knew that this was something, a lot of pressure to, to maintain that pacemaking rate uh, at some. You know, predefined uh, optimal level. Uh, and I think there are lots of examples of homeostatic plasticity in the central nervous system, and this is another one of them. I mean, people talk about synaptic plasticity uh, in within that context. The cells normalize, want to normalize their spiking rate, and normally most cells are dependent upon synaptic input to achieve that end. Uh, and so, if you decrease synaptic input or increase synaptic input, they will scale their synapses to, to achieve a certain global overall spiking rate. In this particular case, it's pacemaking that's driving the basal firing of these cells, but there's still plasticity mechanisms in place to make sure that there's not too great a deviation from the the design point, the set point of of the
1: cells. So given how robust the oscillation is, it's a surprise that it ever stops, reducts, and the cell will suddenly shift and fire a burst, or it will make a big long pause. And trying to visualize the kind of synaptic input that would produce that, would completely overwhelm that oscillator and replace it with a completely different pattern, is a little tricky. The ordinary kind of EPSP that we're used to visualizing on IPSP doesn't seem like it would do the trick. So, uh, what do you think about how the, what, what kind of synaptic mechanism could possibly drive bursts and pause?
2: A powerful one. <laughs> what what's the uh, data actually on what happens if you have a conventional brief um AMPA primary amp primarily AMPA receptor EPSP? What does it actually do? Is there data? Have people done that experiment? Carlos can... Just um, one, just an EPSP? Just just an EPSP that's let's say just barely super threshold. Does it just induce one spike, and does it phase reset, for example? Yeah, so the, the, depending on the size
4: of the EPSP, um, it, it will it will just start spiking, um, and it might increase the rate for a couple of spikes, but it will return back
6: to its...
1: To you get, its get one spike you from you get one spike. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm.
6: Mm-hmm. Hitoshi did those experiments, yeah. and he, he found that he'd use a train of stimuli, and it was actually really difficult to get a burst. From, elect, from from synaptic stimulation. It was real easy to get a pause through the angular receptor, but the burst was was difficult, and it was easier, if I'm correct, if the cells were firing a bit faster.
5: I think it's important to add that not only are they robust pacemakers, but they have a very, very, at least in vitro, they reduce preparation. They have a very limited dynamic range. So as, as my colleagues just said, you can't just drive them so we need something that is special. Um, and it might be actually a combination of channels, as we discussed today. Um, but I think the best evidence, as Carlos presented today, is that it needs a powerful, glutamatergic excitatory drive um, and involves a special channel um, that has its intrinsic voltage dependency, so it becomes a little oscillator. And Maybe you want to you know, um, discuss your, your own it, data. It, it, yeah, it's
4: clear that the... That the pause and, and, and the uh, burst and the background firing rate um, are, are discrete events or discrete phenomena. And it's, it's kind of clear when when we look at Schultz's data where, where, where they have the psychological meaning behind it right there. And then these are events that happen at specific sailing time points for an animal. And the dissociation between in vivo um, recordings um, between the dissociation between um, firing rate and whether you have bursts and pauses so a bursty cell does not necessarily mean you have a, f- a higher firing rate cell um, you can have two cells that uh, average firing rate are exact- are identical yet one is very bursty with pauses and the other one is a pacemaker so that that right there tells me that these must be discrete events and um, and and the fact that it's hard to get a cell to go away from the pacemaker pattern also tells me that these are discrete events. Otherwise, we'd have more of a gradation, right? If we just start injecting more and more depolarizing current, we just get more and more um, faster firing rate, but that's not really what happens.
1: So you think there's a special affair? I mean, sort of my usual way of thinking about a neuron is it's got thousands of inputs. Each one of them is going off every now and then. The neuron is getting some kind of noisy input and then it's trying to encode that somehow in action. I think somebody taught me that in school or something like that. But the picture of the neuron that I'm getting from you guys is more like a cell that's doing its own thing, it's basically ignoring its inputs, and then it gets some, some enormously important input, switches gears and does something completely different for a while under the influence of that, and then it goes back. So I'm wondering what sort of input would that be, especially if it's an input that triggers um, a pause, for example, that must come from a pathway that represents uh, disappointment of, or something, <laughs> and so, um, and, and would be quiet all the time and it would suddenly happen. So what do we know about the kind of input that would be? Is it? Do we know? Do we know the inputs and what they mean, where they come from, what they would do? There, there are,
4: there are I mean, gabargic inputs that... Um, I, I've done in vivo recordings and uh, the, the usual suspects, striatum globus pallidus, um, stacionaga, pars reticulata, at least in vivo in the rat, um, appear to be GABA-A, which is not a good candidate for inducing a pause because it's a, it's a um, the reversal potential for chloride. The GABA-A ion is, is not very hyperpolarizing and the uh, event itself is very brief. It's an ionic um, event. Um John Williams has done experiments before that in vitro where he, where he showed uh, a GABA B mediated effect coming from a, a D1 presynaptic facilitated um, which comes from I guess from striatum was it right which is thought to come from striatum um and but that was in the guinea pig I believe was that right? guinea pig yeah yeah so and and then it Tepper's recently had another paper where he did this in the mouse and he saw um, the GABA B median event from striatum. So maybe it was just a, a species difference um, that we don't see, but at least in the in the guinea pig and the uh, and the um, what's the other one? The mouse. Yeah. Uh, perhaps the striatum is a the source of disappointment. Who knows?
1: Uh, you don't want to say anything about R? <laughs> <laughs> well,
6: so, yeah. AMGars alone. I don't think you'd ever see an AMGAR in inhibition alone. I think you're always going to see the effect of activating AMPA and NMDA receptors prior to the inhibition mediated by AMGAR.
1: And why is that?
6: Uh, it's a guess. <laughs>
1: it's because there aren't any synapses that just have AMGAR receptors. Well,
6: no. I mean, you can sometimes stimulate and and not see AMPA and NMDA. But often most often we've blocked those those receptors anyway. So and and really we just we just don't know. I mean that's a really good set of experiments to do. Selectively stimulate afferents and see what, what receptors are activated. I, I think Carlos talked about the possibility of doing that. I think those are great experiments. Anyway, so but John, you, you showed me beautifully that
3: um, dopamine acting through D2 receptors can activate uh, potassium channels, which do a great job of inducing a, a pause, right? So what are the other inputs that might activate those same ion channels through G-proteins? Serotonin or adrenaline. adrenaline is a very important input to these cells. Uh, yeah. GABA-B is another possibility. I mean, you normally think about the pause as... Of leading in time the stridal activity rather than um, you know, following it. So, uh,
6: can you say anything about those inputs? Uh, definitely GABA B's. The beautiful mm-hmm. GABA B inhibition. It's it's slightly uh, faster than the than the dopamine inhibition. There's there's really if you could release noradrenaline in in the. Uh, it would it would activate D2 receptors the iPSCs mm-hmm. mediated that, that we've seen are, are all blocked by sulfuride. Mm-hmm. Um, you can a snore adrenaline and see a hyperpolarization of dopamine cells that's blocked by sulpiride mm-hmm. and not blocked by alpha 2A. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think the only those are the GABA B and dopamine are the only ones that we know activate this same potassium channel at least. At least from endogenous compounds, you can apply a lot of other things that activate uh, that same potassium conductance. But but I don't know of any any way that those things have been released endogenously.
2: So, could the GABA B response be large enough to synchronize firing of dopamine neurons? Again, I think it would be
6: for a short time. It It would, you know, it resets everybody. And as the as the GABA B IPSC comes out, you get a spike, and then that would follow, and that that would synchronize everybody for for a while, but then it would it would fall apart after a while. Mm-hmm.
5: From from our slice data, when we looked at the variability of repolarization speeds, I mean, we we saw an enormous spread. So even if you would have a fairly powerful GABA B signal resetting at T zero, then I think time to firing would be spread widely. So I think that would be a problem, at least if we infer that our data on young, very young slices, two-week-old slices, are what is happening in the adult animal. Mm -hmm. So there's a problem with synchronization, Mm -hmm. and maybe synchronization is actively avoided um, to not overload the system with dopamine.
1: Actually, pauses are good. I mean, if they mean something, Mm -hmm. then you wouldn't want there to be a pause, again, 400 milliseconds after you had one, Unless that event, disappointing event, happened again 400 milliseconds later. So breaking up the synchrony that follows a pause like that would seem essential to the mm-hmm. ability of that to mean something that the targets.
6: Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe we could get Mike to comment on how often he saw this apparent. Of course, mm-hmm. it's only one cell, so you're right. It, it could be loud.
7: Speak up, Mike. Yeah. Comment on how, how often...
6: How often you would see the cell, after, after a stimula, after stimulation,
7: mm-hmm.
6: how often you'd see a, a spike that, was, that you could predict. You know, you'd, you'd stimulate, and then you'd see a spike, and a spike, and a spike, and then you'd stimulate it again, and it would they'd, it'd fire at the same frequency after every stimulation.
7: Right. So the experiment was I would, I would apply a train of simulations, uh, five simulations at 40 hertz once per minute, and what I would see is that the, I was measuring the, the tonic pacemaker firing of the dopamine neurons. And what I would see after that is I'd see a pause in the firing that would last for approximately one second. And then the cell, each minute that I did it, would start to spike at pretty much precisely the same um, time duration from the, from the burst to it starting to fire again. The second pause would be slightly longer than the pacemaker pattern, and then by about to two seconds after the stimulation. What I would see is that the tonic, tonic rate would resume. And so I'd say there was maybe 10% variation on it from minute to minute as I did the experiment on a single cell. Um, i would never spent a lot of time looking at it across cells to try to see if, if the pause was, was as precise across cells. I imagine it wouldn't be in the, co- the coefficient of variation would be higher. But um, for at least in one cell from minute to minute, that pause was a very predictable length.
3: This is a little bit off this, but this is something that both Bruce and Joachim have worked a lot on, and that is that the the potassium conductance is regulating the the rate of pacemaking. So this regularity afterwards, the KV4 channels are very important regulators of that, right? And it's surprising to me that they don't seem to be modulated so potently in dopamine cells by G-protein-coupled receptor signaling pathways. In many other cells, Kv4 channels, which are the channels underlying this this low threshold activator potassium conductance, which inactivates, which Bruce has shown beautifully, acts as a negative feedback regulator of the inner spike interval during pacing. Is uh, they're potently regulated in many systems by neuromodulatory input, and and they don't seem to be regulated so strongly in dopamine cells, and I don't understand that. I mean, so this would be a way in which pacemaking rate would be regulated after afferent, an afferent barrage which released a neuromodulator. Maybe they want to talk about that a little bit. I mean, is that your experience, or do you think it's readily modulated, or do you...
2: Our experience is, and Jochen probably has something to say also, we have not seen clear modulation of it, despite having spent some time looking for it, and I can't off the top of my head remember exactly what we've done and how many times we've tried it, but certainly we've looked at norepinephrine, acetylcholine, um, and uh, other modulatory transmitters without seeing anything very clear. The only report I know of in the literature is the report of GDNF uh, from Steve Johnson and colleagues uh, mm-hmm. modulating. I don't know Yocum. I, I completely agree.
5: I mean, we have tried things, but never seen clear regulation. But we see enormous variability um, in the amplitude or the number of functional channels across a fairly homogenous population, which was directly linked to the number of, or the abundance of mRNAs, so the alpha and beta subunits. So maybe, but that's just a speculation, um, here there's less biochemical modulation, but a lot of transcriptional control um, on a short level um, that will titrate the pacemaker frequency. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems, I, I agree with Jim, there seems to be a different strategy here of, of using the um, be flexibly flexibly using the A-type channel for for control
3: or firing. It's as if each one of the cells has its own personality. It's going to fire at its own rate, and it doesn't want to be responsive to
1: the vagaries of neuromodulatory (laughs) input or mood,
2: as you put it earlier.
1: Makes perfect sense to me. But I don't want to let you guys get away without talking something about calcium as a toxin and about the possibility that the calcium is constantly fluxing the membrane of the dopamine cell might be the cause of its premature demise, especially in Parkinson's disease. Mm -hmm. So, Jim, you have done a lot of work on that and have some strong ideas.
3: Right, I have some strong ideas. I mean, I I think that the the engagement of calcium channels is uh, clearly a metabolic stress on dopaminergic neurons. And and, um, so, I mean, it, everyone likes to wave their hands about calcium. I mean, we, there's lots of work that's been done related to stroke and things like that where there's a, an acute calcium stress on cells. And we know that that's damaging, that it, it produces all sorts of changes uh, that lead ultimately to cell demise. Um, and so the situation in dopaminergic neurons is a little bit different because um, we're in Parkinson's disease, we're talking about a disease that evolves over... Fifty or sixty years, but uh, so what we've attempted to do is to to see whether the calcium entry that comes during normal pacemaking uh, leads to any measurable change in uh, metabolic stress or any signaling molecule that other studies have linked to ultimately to neurodegeneration. And and so uh, what we've attempted to do is to look at mitochondria. Mitochondria are central players in essentially every model of neurodegeneration, particularly in Parkinson's disease. When people think that uh, production of reactive oxygen species by mitochondria lead to slow, slowly accumulating damage, not just to mitochondria themselves and their capacity to produce ATP, which is necessary to maintain cellular viability, but leads to changes in protein folding and endoplasmic reticular function, leads to the proteostatic stress, accumulation of garbage inside cells, misfolded proteins that, that can't be adequately cleared by uh, uh, proteasomes and uh, lysosomes. Uh, and using a, a, a ratiometric reversible uh, probe that measures redox status of proteins, we've in fact seen that, that mitochondria in compact neurons, which do flux high levels of calcium, uh, that the mitochondrial matrix proteins are more highly oxidized at rest uh, during normal pacemaking than the uh, mitochondrial matrix proteins in ventral tegmental area neurons, which are relatively resistant to the neurodegenerative changes that take place in Parkinson's disease. Those cells, of course, don't flux nearly as much calcium. So uh, the other thing is that we, we can see that part, not all, but part of that oxidative load is is prevented or is, is diminished by blocking plasma membrane L-type calcium channels, uh, which uh, concentrations which are therapeutically relevant, which don't affect pacemaking rate. Uh, again, leading us to believe that that metabolic challenge created by calcium enter, the need to sequester calcium through ATP-dependent mecan- mechanisms, the need to pump calcium out through ATP-dependent mechanisms, and also by the calcium homeostasis, the that, that, uh, homeostatic burden on mitochondria that calcium poses. All of those things increase the, the demand on oxidative phosphorylation by mitochondria, and, and it's easy to imagine that over the course of a lifetime but the increased Oxidation, increased production of reactive oxygen species could lead to diminished capacity to generate ATP and ultimately cellular demise. I also think that that our ideas fit very nicely with what Milcom has shown um, insofar as the role of KTP channels in in protecting neurons against toxin-based neurodegeneration. So uh, I
1: I, don't know if it fits all that much, that it seems to me that bursts would make more calcium come in than pacemaking. So, so, wouldn't it be true that every time we get an unexpected reward, that our dopamine cells are getting extra insult from that? And didn't him show that by when he a, a knockout that decreased bursting and made the cells pacemake more actually protected them? Do I have this right? Protected yes, them. Yes.
5: So, so it's a loss. Uh, by global inactivation, genetic inactivation of uh, a KTP channel that is the only one expressed in dopamine cells that in a top chronic toxic model or a genetic model completely or partially protects selectively those vulnerable cells Jim was talking about. Um, And initially we thought that like any good old potassium channel when it's opened downstream of a stressor because it's a metabolic sensor like in the pancreatic beta cell that it will silence the cell and somehow protect the cells. It was counterintuitive. But our novel in vivo data now seemed to show that opening or having a KTP channel, to say it more carefully, it helps to make the cell burst. So kind of uh, turn around, one could could in the new picture say, um, having a lot of calcium stress and using that stress to activate KTP channel um, might facilitate a very physiological function, which is bursting. And that might be actually why taking drugs and having a lot of uh, pseudo-novelty or chemically-induced novelty is a risk factor for Parkinson's disease. Um, so I think it makes sense, at least as a hypothesis, that we have um, calcium influx and that cal- cal- calcium influx is, is, is the powerful activator of mitochondrial metabolism, including ROS production. But that's there for a purpose we don't understand yet, that these cells monitor the energetic or metabolic state um, to modify behavior. For instance, the degree of activity um, when energy levels are small, either to, to look for food urgently or to save energy. We don't understand it. We don't even know yet what the k has a function, but that's a possibility. Um, so I, th- I think it pretty much makes sense. These, uh, the, the calcium source... The metabolic stress and the change of activity in vivo that is possible with the K-PGN. I mean,
3: you raise a good point, but I don't think the, the points of view are incompatible at all. So, cortical pyramidal cells do not degenerate, noticeably at all with age, but do have burst firing, right? And it, burst firing is typical to NMDA receptors. It may not use exactly the same mechanism, but there's certainly calcium entry, but it's episodic. Cells seem very capable of handling episodic calcium stress. What's different about dopaminergic neurons and why calcium entering during pacemaking is so important, is that that creates a basal stress which diminishes the oxidative uh, phosphorylation reserve, the respiratory reserve, if you will, of the neurons. So they're operating close, and this is one of the things that the Rho-GFP experiment showed, With basal pacemaking, they're they're operating apparently very close to their oxidative phosphorylation capacity. So now what you do, because you push them close to... uh, producing ATP is as fast as they can do it with oxidative mechanisms. Now if you add a calcium load associated with a burst, that may push them into an ATP starvation condition which has all kinds of damaging effects in and of itself. So it's the combination, in my view, of the calcium-dependent pacemaking and burst firing which depends upon NMDA receptors which flux high levels of calcium that puts dopaminergic neurons at risk. If you just had burst fire, or if you just had pacemaking, maybe the cells would show no significant loss of uh, of phenotypic markers or cell numbers with age. It's a combination of those two things, which I think makes them vulnerable by pushing them over uh, to their oxidative uh, uh, limits. Um, And, potentially leads them into ATP starvation uh, for, for periods of time. So avoid avoid excitement and you live longer. I, I think the key thing is you talk, take an L-channel antagonist
2: and you <laughs> live longer.
1: Okay, thanks everybody. This has been real fun and I uh, really appreciate you all coming and participating in this. So. Thank you. Yeah.
2: Thank you. Okay. <laughs>
0: Okay. Thanks for joining us, everyone. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.